Hello, you're welcome to the podcast series that we're doing under the label of Christian Life Issues for today. And for some time we've been focusing on what Jesus had to say about effective prayer. The Bible says in 1 John 5 and verse 14 that we can have this confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, that God will hear us. And so the disciples had that same kind of desire, and they came to Jesus in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. His disciples sensed the inadequacy of their own prayer life and came to Jesus for instruction. I'm sure that every true Christian has a feeling of inadequacy when it comes to the matter of prayer. I confess that though I believe I've been a Christian for more than 60 years, I still feel that I'm just a child in this matter of prayer. I confess that there are times when I've almost envied the disciples and wished that I could come into the physical presence of Jesus Christ to ask my Lord to teach me to pray. While I've thought this way, I realize that this kind of thinking is wrong because we have advantages and privileges that these disciples did not have. We have a fuller understanding and experience of the Holy Spirit than they had. We have the entire New Testament of which they had none when they approached our Lord in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. In the Bible, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, God has given us everything that we need to make us complete and thoroughly equipped unto every good work in the Bible. Now certainly one of the works to which the Bible equips us is in this work of prayer. In the Bible we have example and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ concerning prayer And for a number of weeks, previous to this particular podcast, we've been sitting at the feet of Jesus and examining what he had to say about prayer in in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Now, we have not only the teaching of Jesus, but we have the examples and teachings of the inspired apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our last podcast, we looked at the example of George Mueller, who is reputed to be one of the greatest prayer warriors in all the history of the church. And we learned what George Mueller had learned from the Lord Jesus Christ about how to pray. And today, we want to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about prayer. We're only look at a, a very brief teaching of what Paul had to say about prayer, because Paul uh, gives us many examples in his epistles about what it means to pray effectively. So today, we're coming to the Bible to learn something from the Apostle Paul about effective prayer. And we say, Lord, help us to know better how to pray. Help us to examine one of the many prayers of the Apostle Paul that are found in the Bible. 
And one of those prayers, the primary one that we'll be looking at today, is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, where Paul wrote, Wherefore I, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, he's speaking of the Ephesian Christians, I make mention of you in my prayers. And then he goes on to tell them what he was praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened. That you might know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now certainly Paul was one of the greatest Christians the world has ever known. Paul was not simply a great preacher. He was not simply a great theologian. Even more important, he was a great Christian. Even if he had not been a great theologian and a great preacher, Paul still would have been a great person because he was a great Christian. Assuredly, one of the things that made Paul the great Christian that he was, was his prayer life. Now, I want us to notice several facts about Paul's prayer life as they're described for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. First of all, as we look at this prayer, we notice the person to whom Paul was praying. Paul did not address his prayers to a departed saint. Paul did not pray, O Father Abraham, or O Prophet Isaiah, or O Saint so-and-so. In the Bible, there is only one example of anyone praying to a departed saint. And that's found in Luke 16 and verse 24. It's significant to note in that passage where this man was when he prayed that prayer. The Bible says specifically he was in hell. It's also significant to notice that his prayer was this way. He said, Father, send Lazarus, the person who was in um, hell, said to Abraham, a departed saint, Send Lazarus with some water that he may cool my tongue. And Abraham responded by saying, nothing doing, I can't do it. The only prayer addressed to a departed saint in the Bible was not answered. The Bible teaches us very clearly that it's a foolish thing for us to worship or pray to the saints of God. When Cornelius in Acts, the 10th chapter, fell down in the presence of Peter, Peter said, get up off your face. I'm just a man like you are. Furthermore, Paul didn't pray to some vague, indistinct, abstract spirit in the sky. He didn't pray to some departed saint, and he didn't pray to some spirit in the sky. He didn't make his prayer to the man upstairs. He didn't address somebody bigger than you and I. He didn't address his prayer to God, whoever you are and wherever you are. 
you're somewhere out there. Oh, God, hear me when I cry. He didn't address his prayer to the God of Buddha or the God of Confucius or to the God of Muhammad or the God of all men. No, he addressed his prayer to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Now, when the Apostle Paul prayed to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he meant he was praying to the God whom our Lord Jesus Christ had revealed. The scriptures say the word was made flesh, referring to Jesus Christ, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's found in John chapter 1, verse 14. The Bible says in John 1, 18, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, referring to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we read that Jesus Christ is the express image of God's person. Paul is praying to that personal God in Ephesians chapter 1, that holy God, that gracious God, that merciful God, that omnipotent God, that omnipotent God, that omniscient God, that sovereign God, whom Jesus Christ came to reveal. There is some content in those words that Paul prayed when he said, O God of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul prayed to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1 and verse 17, he meant that he was coming to God on the basis of Jesus Christ. He realized that the only basis on which he as a sinner could approach a holy God was through the one mediator that God had provided between God and men, even the man Christ Jesus. The Bible says, For there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul knew Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father except by Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 18 that it is by Jesus Christ that we have access unto the Father. As he approaches God in prayer, he doesn't say, Lord, remember what I've done for you. Lord, remember how righteous I've been. No, he says, Lord, remember the merit of Jesus Christ. He pleads the person of Jesus Christ. He reminds God of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is the only proper approach in prayer. We dare come to a holy God only through Jesus Christ. According to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, our spiritual sacrifices, which includes prayer, are acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. Paul came in Ephesians 1 and on other occasions as well, knowing that the golden key that unlocks the door into the presence of God is the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul came, he prayed to God 
as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. He also prayed to the God that was the Father of glory. That's what he said. I come to you as the Father of glory. Now Thomas Goodwin says that this may mean that Paul was praying to the Father who was glorious. And certainly that would be true, that God the Father was glorious. It may mean that he was saying, you are the glorious Father. Now the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the glorious Father. He is the infinite God. He is the majestic God. The scriptures say the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. That's Psalm 19. And in the passage of Psalm 19, verse 1, he says, O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. The scriptures tell us that our God is in the heavens and that he's majestic. When Isaiah saw him in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw the glory of God and he had to fall on his face. When Moses saw God in Deuteronomy, we read that he said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I cannot, Moses. I can't show you all my glory, for if you were to see all my glory, you would be disappeared, dissolved. But I will show you a little bit of my glory, and you better be careful, because if you see my entire glory, you will die. Our God is a glorious God. Now, Paul may be reminding the Father and himself about this when he comes to prayer. Thomas Goodwin also suggests that when Paul used the phrase, the Father of glory, he may be addressing God as the one who is the source of all glory. All glory comes from God. God created the glory of the heavens, and God bestows on us, according to Psalm 84 and verse 11, grace and glory. The scriptures say that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. That's Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. And Colossians 3 and verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, that is, as Christians, we know that Christ is our life, and we say, when Christ, who is our life, the Bible says, then you also shall appear with him in glory. In Romans 5 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God bestows glory upon us, the glory of fellowship, the glory of just being accepted by him and being able to talk to him. God bestows glory upon us, the glory of himself, the glory of forgiveness, the glory of renewed bodies, and even eventually, of course, the glory of our renewed bodies, and also the glory of heaven. Paul came to God and said, O thou art the glorious Father, you are the source of all glory. Lord, bestow some of your abundance upon us. So that's how Paul approached him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and as the God and Father of glory. And then secondly, he came to him as the only person who would and could really answer prayer. In Ephesians 1.15, he said, Wherefore I also, speaking to the Ephesians, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, that's how he came, and he was representing the people of God. He said, Your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have a love for all the saints, all believers. And so Paul was praying were people who he had heard about. At this point, he had never even met them. He had heard of the church in Ephesus, yet here he says that he was praying for people that he had just heard about. What did he mean? Well, you must remember that Paul didn't hadn't seen these people for several years. He was in prison when the information got to him about Christians at Ephesus. And this new information had stimulated him to pray for them even more than he'd ever done before. And so here we see Paul praying for people that he had not seen for, at least for some time. And now uh, it had been quite a period of time if he had seen them at all. He was praying for people with whom he had not been in constant association with them, people that he'd simply heard about. And Paul tried to keep, be aware of the fact of what was happening in the churches that he had founded. He had been part of founding that church in Acts chapter 20, but now he had moved on. And so now he hasn't seen them for quite a while, and What he knows about them, he's heard about them, and he's praying for them. And so we ought to follow his example and pray for people that maybe we've never met in other countries, but they're Christians. We know about them, and so we pray for them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, Paul says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I could not wait any longer, I sent to know your faith, that is the faith of the Thessalonian Christians. And he says that he was like a mother whose children had been away for a period of time. He was anxious and concerned about them, for he had not heard anything about them for a while. And he says, I couldn't wait any longer. And so he sent a messenger to find out how they were, lest by some means the tempter, that is Satan, had tempted them, and that his labor had been in vain. God had used Paul in founding the church, but he hadn't been back to that church for quite a while. Now he gets tidings of their faith and of their charity, and he has good remembrance of them, he says, and he desires greatly to see them. And he says, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted, over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. Paul says that if you're standing fast in the Lord, if you as believers are continuing on 
really zealous for him, and he knew that they were, as he tells us in First Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're really standing fast in the Lord, I live, I'm happy, I rejoice. For what thanks can we render to God, says Paul, again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Paul says, if you only knew how happy you make me, and how you stir me up to give thanks unto God when I hear good things about you. Night and day I pray exceedingly that you might not be lacking in your faith. And then he continues praying for the Thessalonians. He says when he heard about them, he went to prayer. He was not with them in person at this point. He was not constantly seeing them. And yet Paul didn't forget to pray for them, people about whom he had heard. But this word heard, as is found here in Ephesians 1, probably indicates more than the fact that Paul was praying more for those whom he had not known previously and now had heard something about. It probably indicates that there were some new people in the church at Ephesus that Paul had never met personally. The church was a growing church. Paul heard about new converts in the church at Ephesus. He only knew about them by report, and yet Paul was moved to pray for them. Now this should certainly teach us something about our prayer lives. It should teach us that we should not only pray for people who are in our own assembly, and people we see week after week or day after day, it should teach us that we as prayer warriors should be praying for others that we only hear about through missionary letters and so forth. Certainly Paul is not saying that we should not be praying for those whom we see constantly, but we very seldom forget to pray for those that we see regularly We do forget sometimes to pray for those that we don't see regularly. Sometimes it's members of our families that we don't see regularly because we're confronted by our families constantly, the ones who are close to us, we pray for them. But we do forget to pray for each other when we don't see each other constantly. But the people that we're most apt to forget to pray for are those we've never seen. Paul teaches us that we ought to pray for people that we only hear about as well as for people we see often. But still further, as we're learning from Paul's prayer life, notice that the people for whom Paul prayed were people who were in a spiritually healthy condition. Paul said, wherefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, I have gone to prayer for you. These people were spiritually prosperous. They were people who had faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, a strong faith. They weren't walking by sight. They were walking by faith. Faith is forsaking all for Christ even though you don't see Christ with your eyes. Faith is forsaking all I trust him, 
Forsaking all confidence in myself, I trust Christ. Forsaking all confidence in my good works, I trust Christ for salvation. Forsaking all confidence in my own abilities to supply my needs, I trust Christ to supply my needs. I pray, give me this day my daily bread. I'm depending upon him regularly. Forsaking all confidence in Christ, all confidence in myself, I pray to Christ. I trust Christ. So here were some people in Ephesians who were trusting Christ. They were walking by faith. They were living by faith. They weren't worrying. They were not falling apart. They were praying in accordance with Matthew chapter 6 and living in accordance with what our Lord taught there. They were walking confidently forward, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only were they people who had faith, they were people who were manifesting love unto all the saints. They were manifesting their love to weak saints, to the extroverted saints, to the introverted saints. They were manifesting their love to the rich saints, the wealthy saints, to the poor saints, to the little faith saints, to the stubborn saints, to the moody saints, to all kind of saints. They didn't have little cliques or cliques in the church at Ephesus. They didn't say, look, you've got to be just like me or I won't love you. No, there was real love among the people. It was one big family. They were one body in Christ. There were not any parties and factions as there were in the church of Corinth. As you read in the book of 1 Corinthians, there were cliques and factions there, but not so in the church at Ephesus. Paul could write and say, I see that you're loving all the saints. I've heard about this. Now, what does it mean in practical terms to love the saints? What was happening in the church at Ephesus? Verse Peter chapter 8 and verse 9 tells us that it means in practical terms to love the saints. I mean, in this passage, Ephesians 1, it means to love the saints. And above all things, to have fervent love among yourselves. For love covers the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging is what the Bible says. And so these were this is what these saints at Ephesus were doing. These Ephesian Christians were covering a multitude of sins. They were using their homes and everything they had to serve the rest of the people of God. To love the brethren as these people means, according to Galatians 6 and 1, verse 1 and 2, that they were bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. That was the law of Christ, that they were to love one another. That was the law that was laid down in John 13, 34 and 35, 
where Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And Paul had heard that the Ephesian Christians were doing that very thing. Do you know what Galatians 6.2 really means when it says we're to bear one another's burdens? Sometimes it, we think it means that if someone's carrying a great big 100-pound weight bag, we go over and lift the bag and carry it for them. Well, that's perhaps what we should do, but that's not what the word burden means in Galatians 6 and verse 2. You have to understand this verse in a context and interpret it in connection with verse 1 of Galatians chapter 6. And in Galatians 6 and verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's, what? Burdens? Concerns? No, burdens. He meant bear one another's weaknesses. Bear one another's problems. What he's saying is, put up with the infirmities and weaknesses of the saints and come over and help them to carry their burdens. Help them to try to get rid of their infirmities and their weaknesses. This is how you show love to one another in Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2. This is the kind of love that the people of God at Ephesus were manifesting toward one another. And yet Paul tells them, I'm praying for you. But why, Paul? Why waste your time? Why pray for these people when they're already living faithfully and fervently for Christ? You ought to be praying for someone else who's more needy. We might say that to Paul. These people are spiritually prosperous, and yet Paul said he was praying for them. Well, let me ask you, who are the people that you really pray for? The spiritually prosperous people? I challenge you to check the epistle of the Apostle Paul and find out how often He tells spiritually prosperous people that he's praying for them. He didn't take them off off his prayer list when they were doing well in the things of God. He prayed for them, and he continued to pray for them. And so, believer, do you pray for spiritually prosperous people? Paul did. He prayed for them because there's always room for growth. No one has fully attained as much spiritual growth as they should attain in this world. And so we need to be praying even for spiritually prosperous believers. As long as we're in this world, no Christian has arrived at perfection. We trust Christ, but we don't trust Christ as much as we should. We love the saints but we don't love the saints as much as we should. We serve Christ, but we don't serve Christ as much as we should. We know something of the Word of God, but none of us knows as much of the Word of God as we ought to know. No, 
the church might be as spiritual as it is, as the one that Paul is praying for here, but there's no church which is so spiritual that it doesn't need our prayers and that it can't make progress. My dear friends, there's a terrible, terrible danger that when we see God beginning to bless other people, we see the church beginning to prosper, we slack off in our prayers. I ask you, do you know anything about that danger? We pray when the problems and difficulties are there. And then all of a sudden, when we see the problem behind us or behind them, we begin to slack off and we begin to fall back and stop praying as much for them. We stop pressing on quite as zealously as we did before. I remember when I was playing football in high school, we were unbeaten in the last nine games of my sophomore year in high school, and we were unbeaten in all the games in my junior year. We came into my senior year, and we won the first seven of eight games. We had run up some of the longest unbeaten streaks of any football team in the state of Pennsylvania at that particular time. We fellows on the football team, some of us had played together for three years. We began to get a little cocky. We thought that we didn't have to practice nearly as hard as we had previously. We began to think that we went out on the field the other team would recognize how great we were and they would just remember our record and then they would roll over and play dead and we would beat them very easily. But it didn't work that way because even teams that are winning need to make progress or else they're going to be defeated. They need to continue to persevere and you know what happened with us? We beat the last two games of my senior year and were beaten very badly. We were beaten very badly. What happened after we had won all those games with that long winning streak? Well, we lost the last two games of my senior year to teams that were beaten by teams that we had beaten badly because we had a letdown. I believe that the same thing often happens among the people of God. We see God giving us a measure of blessing, and so we let down our guard instead of pressing on. Paul knew that, and so he said, I know that you're doing well, but there's always room for growth. I'm going to pray for you. And so Paul prayed for them because he knew that there's always the danger of backsliding. There's always the danger of just beginning to coast in the Christian life. And so he knew that spiritually prosperous churches can become beaten and barren churches. He had some experience of that in his own associations. In Philemon chapter 
verse chapter 1, actually, there's only one chapter there, verse 24, he writes of Demas, and he says that Demas had been a fellow laborer of Paul's. But a bit later, after he says that Demas had once been a fellow laborer with him, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, that Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Well, I know of professing Christians who were once apparently strong in the faith, who had a tremendous love for the brethren. They've now left their first love. They're no longer walking with Christ as they once were. Well, I know of Christians like that. At least at one point they said they were Christians. But at this point they've given up on Jesus Christ. I know of one man who was a fantastic preacher. At this time he has turned completely against Jesus Christ. Well, there are others who once were zealous in their love for Christ, had a tremendous love for the brethren, but they've fallen away from their first love and they're no longer walking with Christ as they once were. I know of churches where there was love, fidelity, zeal, and commitment for Christ, but they've lost their first love. They've lost their zeal, their enthusiasm, their commitment. Sometimes they've lost their commitment to orthodox doctrine, or sometimes there may be a kind of uh, superficial orthodoxy, but still there's something missing. What's happened? They've lost their first love. The church at Ephesus itself stands as a terrible warning of this possibility. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, when Paul writes to them, he tells them, I know of your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and your love to all the saints. Yet some 30 years later, when the Lord Jesus spoke to this church in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and verse 5, he said, you know, you left your first love. This is what he said of them. He said, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. Remember from whence you have fallen and repent. Now this fact that people lose their first love ought to cause us to pray earnestly for ourselves that we would continue zealously for the Lord should also cause us to pray earnestly for churches that are now in spiritually prosperous condition. Just remember, they can lose their enthusiasm. Others have. They can lose their zeal. They can lose their commitment to Christ and a commitment to truth. We need to continue to pray for ourselves and for others. Even if we are spiritually healthy, because of the terrible danger of backsliding, all of us have to be constantly praying, Lord, help me to persevere and help others who are running swiftly and zealously for you now to continue. And we ought to do that because we know that there are others who have left their first love. This fact ought to cause us to pray earnestly 
for churches that are now in a spiritually prosperous condition. They can lose their enthusiasm. They can lose their zeal. They can lose their commitment to Jesus Christ in truth. We need to continue to pray for ourselves and for others, even if we're spiritually healthy right now, because there's a terrible danger of backsliding. All of us have been in churches where there have been coldness and deadness, and we come away saying, thank God for what we have in our church. We're not like that. But our church could become just like these other churches if we don't pray and press on. Let us then learn from Paul something about the people for whom we should pray. 